The election of a Labour government in Australia has dramatically raised the stakes in the energy debate. Labour's 2030 target requires the closure of 60% of our coal generation capacity over the next eight years, according to the Australian Energy Market Operator. If we cannot replace this with other reliable and affordable fuel sources, the consequences for this country will be dire. Hello, I'm Nick Cater, Executive Director of the Menzies Research Centre, and this is the Water Cooler Podcast. At the Mendes Research Centre, we've been following energy policy closely for the best part of a decade. Wind and solar have their place, to be sure, and batteries can assist at the margins. But the engineering challenge of replacing a dependable source of dispatchable energy like coal or gas with weather-dependent generation and storage is so enormous that we have to find another way. That's why I was keen to hear the views of Michael Schellenberger, a California-based thinker and author who writes about the intersection of climate change, the environment, nuclear power and politics. Michael Schellenberger visited Australia earlier this month to address the Conservative Political Action Conference in Sydney. His arguments are clear, logical and incisive, as I think you'll agree as we replay his session in this special Watercooler podcast which we bring to you thanks to the cooperation of CPAC and the official broadcasters ADH-TV. If you'd like to watch the video of Michael Schellenberger's presentation, including the illustrative graphs and slides, you'll find a link to the ADH-TV website in the notes on this podcast. You'll also find details of Schellenberger's book, Apocalypse Never, which I highly recommend, particularly for its insights into the influence of the large environmental advocacy groups on the climate and energy debate. We'll be featuring some more sessions from CPAC, including an important contribution from my Menzies Research Centre colleague Amanda Stoker in some more water cooler specials that will be available soon. In the meantime, I recommend you browse all the speakers, including Jacinta Price, Alex Antic, Tony Abbott and even myself. I'm Nick Cater for the Menzies Research Centre. Thank you for listening. We're not here just to win an election. We are here to win something for our country. What a pleasure to be here with all of you. It's so exciting to meet so many people that I only know from Twitter and from Sky News. Met Rita and, and uh, Rowan and James. And congratulations to Andrew for a really successful CPAC this year. It's incredible to meet all of you. And I'm really looking forward to being able to chat a little bit afterwards. So I want to talk about the power of abundance. There's a set of ideas that are some big ideas right now that you're all pretty familiar with. The first, we're in a climate emergency fires, floods, heat waves. The barrier reef is disappearing. We hear that plastic is evil. You may have seen the plastic straw get stuck up that sea turtle nose. Renewables are the future. You can see in Australia a huge increase of the share of electricity production from renewables. Nuclear is just too darn expensive, we're told. I'm here to say, not so fast. Climate change is real, it's not the end of the world. In fact, carbon emissions hardly anybody's reported on it, actually have been flat and even slightly declined over the last decade, according to the best available scientific data. The death rate from natural disasters has crashed. We have four times as many people as we did in the world 100 years ago, but the death toll has declined about 90%. In the United States, just to get a sense of it, somewhere between 300 and 500 people die every year from natural disasters. More people die walking from their bed to the toilet than they do from natural disasters. 
In fact, as a result of declining deaths and the declining cost of natural disasters, the total number of disasters has actually been going down. And one of the ways that the woke media have misled everybody is by confusing extreme weather events and natural disasters. Natural disasters are strictly defined as deaths and cost. And given that we're becoming so much more resilient to extreme weather events, the total number of disasters has actually gone down this century, another major unreported fact. The cost of disasters is declining everywhere and has for the last 30 years. Land falling hurricanes has actually slightly declined. No trend in major global hurricane frequency globally. No increase in hurricane damage. And the reason is, is that when you factor in the additional wealth that's in harm's way, if you look at Miami Beach 100 years ago, yes, when a hurricane struck Miami Beach, there wasn't as much damage. But when you account for all of the wealth that human societies have achieved, then you see no change in the overall cost of these disasters. What about hurricane frequency? I had the great pleasure of correcting one of the witnesses on a congressional panel a couple of weeks ago who claimed that hurricane frequency and intensity were increasing. In fact, the best available science predicts that there will be a 25% decline in hurricane frequency in the future, even alongside a 5% increase in intensity, which we are not seeing at this point. No increase in U.S. heat wave frequency or magnitudes. We do expect to see, because the planet is warming, warmer temperatures, greater precipitation, greater temperature extremes, but there's, it's not showing up yet as an increase in heat waves in the United States or elsewhere. Droughts are not increasing in Europe, despite what you've read. The deaths from floods is going down. There's a greater area flooded, but less damage. Same story in China. We've just gotten so much more resilient in our cities and at protecting our loved ones. That's why we're not seeing these deaths or disasters. Pakistan, widely misreported as this extraordinary floods. The problem in Pakistan and elsewhere in the developing world is simply a function of they didn't properly prepare flood management to protect lives there. And you can see this is what's happening, is that more people are living near rivers. The cities next to rivers are growing. So more people are potentially impacted by floods, but we're also becoming safer and more resilient when those floods strike. Sea level rise, it is happening. It's expected to be 0.6 meter rise before the end of the century. I don't worry that much about it because I've been to the Netherlands. In the Netherlands, there are some parts of it that are a full seven meters below sea level. This is a country that became rich as a technological powerhouse in part by adapting to life below sea level. What about fires? According to the best available science, the area burned globally declined by 25%, which is an area about the size of Texas since 2003. Forest fires, this is not rocket science. We're not doomed to losing our forests. You just need to do prescribed burns and mechanical clearing of forests, or what former President Trump called raking the forests. We wasn't totally wrong. And we had dramatic proof of this in 2020, a high intensity fire, which is the kind of fire that we don't want because it burns the tops of the crowns of the trees and destroys whole ecosystems. High intensity fire in a badly managed forest arrived in a well-managed forest and it dropped to the ground. It became a slightly warmer than usual forest fire that kept the ecosystem intact. Most of the forests in North America and around the world require some amount of fires in order to have regeneration. What about the Great Barrier Reef? You all know the answer to this. Perhaps the worst reported of all the stories about climate change, there's more coral on the Great Barrier Reef than there has been in 36 years. And isn't that wonderful? Isn't this something that we should celebrate? <laughs> Nature's not fragile, it's resilient. 
The fact of the matter is we are producing more food than ever. We have a 25% surplus. It's unimaginable how much food we're producing. Yields are increasing in developed countries around the world. And according to the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization, we're going to see increased yields with improved technological innovation. And in particular, not this is not the most advanced science, but just in places like Sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, you just need fertilizer, irrigation, and tractors, and you're going to see a significant increase. Slightly complicated graph to read, but those on the right side on the rain-fed systems and the little white dots are what would happen if under climate change if they don't make those changes. So clearly, human factors massively outweigh climate change. What about this idea of existential risk? Vaslav Smil, who's one of Bill Gates's most trusted authors, he went and looked at various threats to human life on Earth. And keep in mind that 30 to 50% of humans think that climate change is going to result in human extinction or an end to life on Earth. Vaslav Smil looked at this in a really interesting book that came out in 2008, Global Catastrophes and Trends. He looked at wars, diseases, volcanoes, tsunamis, and asteroids, found that all of them pose the highest risk of catastrophe. We actually have a really hard time even telling a story of how climate change could lead to human extinction. By contrast, one bad asteroid, I'll tell you, I became a little bit of an asteroid alarmist after reading this book. Renewables, they just can't power a high energy society. You can see here that energy remains tightly coupled to GDP. So there is no poor high energy country, just as there is no rich low energy country. You can see that little squiggly line of Germany's energy consumption. It has declined very slightly per capita, but not to Vietnam or Indonesia or Indian levels. We can slightly do better with energy efficiency, but for the most part, high levels of energy consumption are required for our prosperity. What about those Australian renewables that everybody talks about? Well, if you look at the share of electricity, and this, by the way, is from the most recent Australian government Department of Energy, Climate and Environment Energy Update. It just came out a few days ago. You can see that the share of renewables isn't much higher than what it was in 1961. And that's what matters. It's not the total amount. It's actually the share. In fact, if you look at the big event here of Australian energy consumption by fuel type, the major event is we're seeing a decline in coal being replaced by natural gas. And this is a very familiar pattern around the world. You see it in Britain. You see it in the United States. It's why carbon emissions in the United States declined by 22% between 2005 and 2020. It was simply 61% of that decline was simply the replacement of coal with natural gas, which emits about half as much carbon dioxide. You can see here the share of energy consumption by source in Australia. Renewables barely register. The main event remains coal, oil, and gas. What about the cost? The cost has been enormous of this huge renewables push. You can see that the Australian energy prices rose twice as fast as incomes did over the last 16 years in Australia. That's the opposite direction that we have gone historically. We've traditionally made energy cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. Same thing with food. It's why all of us can live these privileged lives doing things other than working in the productive sectors of the economy. We can be baristas and massage therapists and just spend all day tweeting like I do. <laughs> this is uh, a privileged existence that depends on reducing the share of, of the, the amount of income that we need to spend on things like energy and food. And now we're in the worst energy crisis in 50 years. It could be much worse than the crisis in the early 70s. Australia, like the United States, is lucky and fortunate in that you have huge reserves of fuels. But even here, you can see that the penetration of renewables onto the grid has been increasing your costs sharply, and it's only going to get worse. As a result of the war on natural gas and its obsession with renewables, the world's actually going to burn more coal in 2022 than it ever has before. Keep in mind that it was just last fall that the various European countries and other countries in the world got together in Scotland and insisted that African nations should not use fossil fuels. 
In fact, it was the International Energy Agency that said that no more investments should be made in fossil fuels. And as a result of the underinvestment in natural gas, the world has been reverting to coal. Let's take a closer look at renewables. One of the most curious things for people and one of the most misleading ways that renewable salespeople sell their technology is they point to the cost of electricity or the cost of a solar panel has indeed come down significantly over the last decade. You can see the cost of wind and solar. They produce much cheaper electricity than they did in the past. And yet at the same time, there's this paradoxical, seemingly paradoxical phenomenon where everywhere renewables are deployed at scale, they make electricity more expensive. Why is that? To simplify it, there's basically two reasons. It requires more machines, more backup power generators, more transmission systems, and more people to manage the chaos of an electrical grid with a large amount of unreliable weather-dependent energy. You can see this was brilliantly predicted by a German economist almost 10 years ago. He pointed out that when wind reached 30% of the electrical grid, its value would decline by 40%. When solar reached 15%, its value would decline 50%. And the reason is easy to understand. Solar and wind produce too much energy when you don't need them and not enough energy when you do. And both of those impose costs on the electrical grid. What you want from electricity is you want a very tight coupling of supply and demand at all times. Every time you take electricity off the grid and put it back on, you're paying two energy penalties, which increase the cost of that energy somewhere between 20 to 40%. And that's true whether you're pumping the water uphill as a way to store it and then running it over a turbine afterwards or putting it into chemical lithium batteries. What about the batteries? Well, my friend Zion Lights just said the batteries are prohibitively expensive. Just to get a sense of it, it costs about three quarters of a trillion dollars to back up the U.S. electricity grid for just four hours. We don't need to back up the grid for four hours. We need to back it up if you're relying on solar and wind for weeks or months, because there are periods of time where there's no sunlight and no wind, including often at night. Californians, <laughs> funny thing about night. Californians spend more money than any other state in the United States except for Hawaii, which has to import most of its energy in the form of petroleum to burn for electricity. The reason is because we've done so much renewables. Our electricity prices rose seven times more than they did in the rest of the United States over the last decade. Well, certainly you would think with all that investment, we must be getting a huge amount of our electricity from zero carbon sources. In fact, the total amount of electricity from zero carbon sources and the share declined from the year 2011 that you can see there, declined from then until today. You can see we had over 100,000 gigawatt hours from zero carbon sources in 2011. Last year, we had 90,000. Why is that? There's just two reasons. We shut down one of our last two nuclear plants, and we have been having a drought, which means less electricity from hydroelectric. So this is in the state that is the model for the Biden administration and Democrats for how to manage the energy transition. Even in Germany, it saw last year the total amount of renewables go down. Why is that? They deployed more solar panels, they deployed more wind turbines, but it just wasn't very windy in Germany. And that explains why they ended up burning more coal and, you, and seeing their emissions rise. What's the goal here? The goal, what we should want to do is decouple energy from nature. The older idea, the bad Malthusian pro-scarcity idea, is that we should reduce our energy consumption and reduce our use of nature. That turns out to be completely wrong. In order to protect the natural environment, we actually need to use more energy. Here's what I mean by that. Think of your smartphone. Some of you that are my age or older, you remember the old stereo console systems? What a nightmare those were. In Berkeley, we got rid of those. Now I have a little Bluetooth speaker. Sounds amazing, right? Tiny little Bluetooth speaker. It's a process of dematerialization. It's a bit of jargon, but dematerialization from an environmental point of view, but also from an economic point of view, is what you want. 
What we do in Berkeley is we put our old stereo console systems on the sidewalk and we put a little sign that says free on it. And then after nobody takes it for about a month, then we put it in our trash can. It's a bit of a spiritual ritual. But think about the newspapers. I used to read five newspapers a day. It would be like a stack of them. Whole forests were destroyed from my reading habits. It's all been dematerialized. But this simple smartphone requires a huge amount of energy. You may have heard these stories that Bitcoin processing in the United States requires all the electricity of, a, of the state of Texas. So all those servers that are operating, all of the energy for dematerialization, you're basically substituting energy for natural resource. If you want to save the natural environment, you want to leave nature there. You want to leave nature in the ground. And that's the goal both for resources but also for land use. So the picture here is of moving from matter-dense fuels towards energy-dense ones. Another way to think of this is as moving from carbon-intensive fuels to hydrogen-intensive ones. Ultimately, where we want to be is using uranium as our main fuel source. A single Coke can of uranium can provide me with all of the energy I need for my high-energy life. Not only is that not a harm to the environment, it's a net benefit to the environment because I'm going to be using other, less of other fuels and less of other materials that can then stay in nature. You can see this transition that occurred even with just coal. The coal industry has done an amazing job reducing conventional pollutants, decline of carbon monoxide, 83%, a decline of lead from petroleum, 99%, NOx, 61%, SO2. Remarkable journey away from the smoky material matter-intensive fuel sources. At the Menzies Research Center, we're passionate believers in the power of ideas to change conversations and shape the future. Thanks to podcasts, we've extended our circle of conversations to thousands of people every month. Podcasts are a great medium for think tanks. Listeners turn into podcasts for longer, more sophisticated conversations than they can find on conventional media, and we're very happy to provide them. And thanks to the generosity of our supporters, we can deliver them for free. You can show your support by subscribing to the Menzies Research Center from just $10 a month. Go to menziesrc.org slash subscribe or click on the link in the podcast notes. And you can see the problem with renewables is that renewables are proposing to move us in the opposite direction towards a higher material intensity than we have under fossil fuels and nuclear. Same thing for electric cars. This was a report put out by the IEA after being badgered for years to tell the truth about renewables. They finally came out with this report and tried not to publicize it, but the graphs in it are stunning. You can see there at the bottom, natural gas and coal require a small fraction of the material throughput, the mining throughput that offshore wind and solar and electric that electric cars provide. Similarly, you can see that the mineral demand for these clean energy technologies would rise fourfold by 2040. So we use about 10% of the materials in the world today for energy production. If we move towards 100% renewables, that would rise to between 40 and 50%. That's going to be inflationary. But there's a bigger problem than all of these, which is that moving towards renewables and electric vehicles would shift our dependency to China. This is just simply not going to happen over the next several decades. The vast majority of the processing of these minerals, copper, lithium, nickel, cobalt, rare earths, 
are done in China. Even in Australia, where you have very large lithium mining, it's the processing is done in China. And those industries, that processing is not going to be reshored anytime soon, if ever, given precisely the environmental impact. So it's highly unlikely that this transition can continue with the subsidies and the strength that has been continuing over the last two decades. And you can see here the recycling impacts, the demands of it would be enormous. This is why most people don't think they're going to recycle all of these materials at the end of their lives will just go into the trash heap. You can see the similar pattern in land use. Three to 400 times more land in sunny California is required to generate the same amount of electricity from a solar farm as from a nuclear plant. 400 times more land for wind than nuclear. And I should say that's our last nuclear plant there on the right. It's called Diablo Canyon. And that is actually a whale breaching in front of the plant. I did not Photoshop that in for this presentation. That actually is what the environment is like. They tried to shut this plant down by claiming that it was having a negative impact on marine life which is hysterical because when you visit, there's seals and sea lions literally hanging out at the outtake valve of the plant. And we went there on our boats and shot a little video, including for Sky News, I believe, who broadcast in Australia. Happy to say that the truth can win out. We just got the governor to decide to keep the plant operating until 2030. A huge... Uh, Bucket list achievement, a major victory. One of my happiest moments. Why did solar panels become so much cheaper? Is it because they became more efficient at converting sunlight to electricity? That is not the reason. You can see that the solar panel efficiencies only improved by 3% over the last decade. The main event, the reason the Chinese were able to make solar panels so cheaply is because they use Uyghur Muslims that are housed in concentration camps. This is not my finding. This is the New York Times. This is the Bundestag. This is the U.S. State Department that all say that genocide is being committed against the Uyghur Muslims, and this is how they employ them. So by subsidizing solar panels brought to Australia and the United States from China, we are subsidizing a genocide. For me, this is a categorical moral imperative. We should not be importing more of these solar panels. I 100% support reshoring solar panel manufacturing. Thank you. I'm sorry to say that liberals have been terrible on this issue. Progressives have been terrible on this issue. I've confronted senators on it. I've confronted members of Congress on it. I did it again two weeks ago, and they know that they're in the wrong. I was happy to make AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, shift uncomfortably in her seat as I hammered away. <laughs> Very satisfying as I hammered away on Chinese solar genocide panels, went after it about three times. The Biden administration said that they were gonna ban the import, and then they just said, nah, we're gonna keep importing them. No explanation, no justification. What about the waste? Every single solar panel, when it comes off the roof, is categorized as hazardous waste. In California, where we're super sensitive to environmental issues, we rip them off the roofs and then we throw them into a cardboard box on the driveway where they smash and break and then the dust kicks up where the immigrant workers can then breathe that dust and we think it's a clean source of energy. It actually produces 300 times more waste than nuclear plants do. And a study that came out in the Harvard Business Review last year found that if you accounted for the waste, if you had to control the waste and manage the waste like only nuclear does, it would make the electricity from solar panels four times more expensive than we thought it would be. So this is the economics of solar will darken quickly as the industry sinks under the weight of its own trash. This is a devastating argument against solar. What about the nuclear waste? Best kind of waste. As an outsider to the nuclear industry, I could never understand why people wanted to bury it. They would always say, well, we got to bury it. Why would you need to bury it? The Swiss put it on a basketball court. You know, it never hurts anybody. The only way it could is if one of those canisters fell over on you. I used to think that the waste from nuclear power plants was liquid green because I got all of my information from The Simpsons. 
It turns out that it's just that same Coke can of uranium that goes in, it fissions, the atoms are split apart, actually only a small fraction of them, about 5 or 10%, and then it comes out the other side as waste. Very slightly lighter, by the way, but not much. The French can reprocess it. The world is so much abundant uranium. They've actually been shutting down uranium mines in Canada. Australia, of course, has abundant uranium mines. There's no risk of running out of it, and then we can do what the French do, which is to reprocess it and reuse it in what are called advanced reactors or fast reactors. So for me, as an environmentalist, this is exactly what you would want from your energy production. You would want to manage all the waste at the site of production. For me, that's where the waste should be managed. The desire to move the waste, to bury it, represents a kind of deep anxiety that people have with the technology. Understandable anxiety, but there's no technical reason that you would want to do that. You want to keep it on the site of production and be able to use it in future reactors. Plastic, it turns out, is good. You may be familiar with what are called tortoise shell glasses. I have a pair here. Happy to say they're totally fake. No tortoises were harmed making my glasses. There they are. You know, it's got that characteristic tortoise shell design right there. That was, in fact, made out of sea turtles because people apparently couldn't distinguish between tortoises and sea turtles. So the sea turtle that got the plastic stuck up its nose was only here because we stopped harvesting those sea turtles for their shells. They used to pull the sea turtles out of the ocean, heat them up over a fire and then rip the shells off the back of them. Most of them died, but some of them they'd send back out. And the Japanese nearly drove these hawksbill sea turtles extinct in their obsession for making jewelry from sea turtle shells. So what petrochemical plastics, plastics made from petrochemical byproduct is doing, is just reusing another part, a byproduct, a waste byproduct of the petrochemical system in plastics that then end up allowing us not to have to use bioplastics. One of the most famous, of course, is ivory tusks, which we made piano keys and billiard balls out of. So the idea that we're going to go back to biofuels would be a net degradation of the natural environment. We now know that corn ethanol produces more greenhouse gases and more air pollution than petroleum does. The picture here is you want to use less land, you want to stop growing your energy, and you want to start producing it from underground with higher energy densities as you go from coal to oil and gas to uranium. But we should be really proud of the plastics industry for its conservation contributions. What about the plastic waste that's in the ocean. It's a terrible thing. Nobody wants plastic waste in the ocean. Why is it there? It's because we pretend to recycle plastic waste, ship it to poor countries where they don't have a waste disposal system, and it makes its way into the oceans. Second order effects. Progressives are not super good on second order effects. So the solution to plastic waste, and I know this is gonna, this is it's shocking to hear, but the solution to plastic waste is to put it in landfills or incinerate it. That's where it belongs. It's already a downcycled byproduct of the petrochemical industry. Just needs to be thrown in the trash. Please stop recycling your plastic waste. It's going into the oceans. Put it in the trash. Shocking, right? I still feel kind of weird throwing in the trash, but that's where it goes. You can still, by the way, recycle your plastic, tin cans, glass, aluminum, all that stuff is still good for recycling, but there's no economics. The economics of recycling plastic don't make any sense. So if basically everything that everybody's been told about the environment is wrong, and I mean almost everything, and in Apocalypse Never I describe rainforests, meat production, conservation, endangered species, all of it, the question is why? Why did everybody get it wrong for so long? I think there's a few reasons. The first is obviously that fear sells. You can sell newspapers by predicting the end of the world. You want to read about that. You should want to read about the end of the world if that's really what's going on. So fear obviously sells. There's a financial motivation here. The other is that people, let's face it, we like to power trip. Hypocrisy is the point. Jet setting to a climate conference, that just shows how awesome I am. They don't hide it. 
They love it. They want you to know that not only are they richer than you are, but they're more moral too, and they want you to applaud their wealth and power. There's a very beautiful picture, Harmony with Nature. This is a Chobani yogurt ad, by the way, that went viral. Solar punk. We're in desperate need of this for nuclear. There's a picture of being in nature. We all love being in nature. The problem is that the renewables actually degrade the natural environment. But there is this idea of achieving something peaceful, a harmony with nature. It's a religion. Let's face it. It's getting right by God. There's this view of the Industrial Revolution as a fall from nature. This is a very peculiar to the West, by the way. In Japan and South Korea, which have religions that are based more on an ancestor worship, I always think the West, we have a kind of hardware that is wired for a particular Judeo-Christian story. And then when people stop believing in God and traditional religions, it just got replaced by apocalyptic environmentalism. One of my favorite stories here is that these kids that worked in the factories, we all see this as this terrible fall from Eden. These kids were working on the farm. Are people aware of that? And the thing that allowed the kids to stop working in the factory and go to school was the success of the Industrial Revolution. But nonetheless, we tell a story about industrialism as though it's the worst. The other is just plain narcissism. We project onto the world apocalypse. I mean, let's face it. Humans have been around for somewhere between 200,000 and 2 million years. You really think the world's going to come to end in your lifetime? Maybe it makes you feel kind of special to imagine it. It's all coming to an end now. Why? Because I'm here. And I'm the only one that can save it. So we project onto things that are not climate related, the idea that they are climate related, like a natural gas fire in the Gulf of Mexico. But you see it everywhere. You see it in the desire to, by a young activist, to go and invade the court during Roger Federer's last tennis game and light his arm on fire in just the most pathetic little protest. But there's a kind of narcissism which has resulted from decades of coddling our children and not providing strict limits or responsibility. I think the other is energy nihilism. Nihilism is two things that are related. The first is this idea that life has no meaning, that there's no purpose. We're just like other animals. We live, we procreate, we die. There's no point to any of it. That's nihilism that certainly Nietzsche and others talked about in the 19th century. But there's another where that ends up going then is a really destructive urge. And this combines with the desire to feel power over society. Bringing London to a halt, for example, bringing your most important industries to an end. Civilization is not that complicated. You need three things, abundant energy, food, housing, the basics, you need law and order, and you need meritocracy. All three of those are under attack. The reason that someone like me, a longtime liberal and progressive, is here at a conservative event is because conservatives are the guardians of civilization. It is your role, it is your purpose to protect civilization from the radical left that has been traditionally the role of the conservative movement. And so you end up with a paradox where there's many of us that came from the left and still hold many very liberal views, which I do indeed hold, but believe that those liberal values are now under attack by the nihilists who wanna tear down the entire civilization. What does it mean for the conservative movement or for a broader movement? I think it needs to be focused on abundance. It needs to have a positive message. You can't beat their plan as apocalyptic and terrible as it is with no plan. You need a positive vision of the future. I don't think talking markets, markets, markets is enough. I don't think that's enough. I think we're reverting back to the nation state. I think we need a Western energy alliance to meet the needs that Europe has. They need gas and we need nuclear in particular. It's an abundance agenda. 
It starts with love. It starts with the love of humanity and the moral imperative that everybody in the world has a right to enjoy our levels of prosperity. And anybody who attempts to deny them, thank you. And gosh darn, I will fight to defend their right to prosperity and abundance. I think they have a very hard time, the nihilistic left, in trying to keep Africans and Asians poor. It's also a threat to our national security because you know Russia and China, we right there offering them hydroelectric dams, nuclear power plants, oil and gas industries if the West decides not to. And that's exactly what the West is doing right now with really the wholesale destruction of the World Bank and other institutions uh, moving towards promoting solar panels and batteries rather than building hydroelectric dams and nuclear plants. We need to preach the gospel of prosperity. Prosperity is what allows human freedom. It's what allows women and children to pursue lives beyond the farm. And we see what happens in countries that lose touch with the essential need for prosperity. In Sri Lanka, they decided to forego fertilizer and the entire country collapsed in less than one year year. LNG is a big part of the story, and Australia is a big part of LNG. There's just Qatar, the United States, and Australia that are the big LNG exporters, and you can see you guys are doing great on this vision here. What I think an abundance agenda allows the conservative movement to do is to preach abundance, prosperity, security, energy security obviously being essential now that we've seen what Putin is doing to Europe, but it also allows you to tell a story about decarbonization. Even if you are not that concerned about it yourselves, I think young people have shown that they do care about it. I certainly think that decarbonization is a goal we should have, but it needs to be put in its proper place, everything in the right place. And it should be focused on energy security, energy affordability, and then decarbonization. And LNG is a big part of that. Nuclear. It's inevitable that Australia is going to go nuclear. It's just inevitable. I mean, you've taken a while, but it's going to happen. Keep in mind that nuclear is human beings. We spend too much time on the machines. Do not let the nuclear engineers decide your future on this. It needs to be decided by human beings. Go to Korea. Go to Japan. See what went wrong in Fukushima. I've been there twice. Affirm that nuclear is a technology created and run by humans, operated, regulated, built by human beings. It's a beautiful opportunity for partnerships with your allies in Korea and Japan. Several of whom I've met, you can see this building, the Shinkori site here, the last two reactors. These are guys that have worked together for decades. They have the experience. They just got done building plants in UAE. I asked them, I said, what's different about these reactors that you guys are building? They said, there's nothing different. We do the same standard design so we can build them faster and more cost effectively each time. I was like, come on, it must be something you did differently. He's like, okay, fine, we're using more of the little yellow cranes. That was about it. The cheapest reactors are the kinds that we have the most of. Boiling water reactors are by far, um, heavy water reactors, pressurized water reactors are the cheapest. You just want to go with standardized designs. Don't get too fancy. The Koreans have a beautiful design you can go visit. The French have a design. They probably shouldn't have changed it, but they've now built several of them, so their construction crews are getting better at it. And the Japanese have a lot of experience in this. They obviously failed with Fukushima, but what we've seen with this technology is that some amount of failure and some amount of humility is actually quite important. Can attitudes change? Of course they can. I mean, look what we've done in the United States. Democrats' support for nuclear power went from 37% in 2018 to 60% this year. And it's only going to go up given the energy crisis. You guys can do the same thing here in Australia. And it's starting to happen around the world. Take heart, take heart in the Dutch farmers. They've stood up against the machine and won. Thanks, you guys. Thank you.
been listening to another water cooler conversation brought to you by the Menzies Research Centre. We'd like to bring you many more, of course, and you can help us by subscribing from just $10 a month. Go to www.menziesrc.org slash subscribe. I'm Nick Cater, and thank you for listening. Thank you.